Hello and welcome back to the Grow Luminatus podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I am so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with Diane Radicke on the groundbreaking German modernist Paula Modersen Becker. But before we start, I am so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's divine comedy with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week their founder Rosh Patani will be giving us an insight into Alighieri and I hope you enjoy this episode. I wanted to tell you a little bit about how we make our jewellery at Alighieri. We make everything in wax. I sculpt them like mini sculptures and carry them by hand like fragile little creatures to our casters in London's Hatton Garden. Our casters are an amazing family-run business and they take this little wax and transform it through the ancient art of lost wax casting, whereby the wax is transformed into recycled bronze and silver before being gold-plated and finding its way to you. Hello everyone and welcome to The Great Women Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the world-renowned New York-based writer and art historian, Dr. Diane Radicke. A specialist in European art from the late 19th to the mid-20th centuries, in particular focusing on the work of women artists in her extensive scholarship, Radicke has spent decades working as the world's leading scholar on the pioneering German artist Paula Modersen Becker. Having received her PhD from Harvard University in 1993, as well as being the recipient of numerous awards, including the Fulbright and AAUW fellowships, Dr. Radicke has since gone on to publish widely, including the acclaimed publication Paula Modersen Becker, The First Modern Woman Artist by Yale University Press. Her essays have appeared in the Museum of Modern Arts, one-on-one series of monographs, Paula Modersen Becker, Self-Portrait 2018, and the exhibition catalogue on Modersen Becker for the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Copenhagen, as well as many more. Published essays include The Life of Lady Art Students Changing Art Education at the Turn of the Century in the College Art Association Art Journal, and Pretty Slash Ugly, The Art of Marie Laurenson and Paula Modersen Becker, published in Make by Goldsmiths University of London. Radicke also served as the first editor and translator of the letters and journals of Paula Modersen Becker as early as 1980 and has been instrumental in museum acquisitions of Modersen Becker's paintings and bringing her work to the foreground for us to study today. And that is why I'm so excited to say that today we will be discussing Paula Modersen Becker. Diane Radicke, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing just 
Fine. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's such an honour to speak with you. I am just in awe of the work that you have done unearthing Paula Modison Becker's work and bringing it into the mainstream. I mean, one can't help but be just entranced and encapsulated by her work. It is at once compelling, intimate, expressive and modern. Sometimes I can't quite even believe that Modison Becker's paintings were created over a century ago because I feel like they speak to the present day so vividly but I want to get into her in a moment but I'd just love to start off by asking you when was it that you first heard of Paula Modison Becker and what were your immediate reactions? Well my immediate reaction was the same as yours I couldn't believe what I was seeing it was a college classroom it was 1969 it was Chicago Illinois and as I've come to discover so much of what is now in the mainstream about women artists was first really unearthed and studied in college classrooms because it wasn't in texts. It wasn't in books. It wasn't published. I was in a class on modern art, and the professor was not an art historian. As a matter of fact, he himself was an artist, and I rather suspect that the department gave over the class on modern art to him because no reasonable art historian wanted to (laughs) touch anything that was less than 100 years old at that time. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Art history had its own parameters in the 60s, and that was really quite interesting to me, quite revelatory, because he had a very different attitude towards what we were studying and how hallowed what we were studying was and how permissible some of these mavericks were. It turned out that he had spent World War II in Europe, and whenever he got a pass, apparently he went to museums and photographed things. And when he came back in this class, he showed us slides that he had made of this woman artist. He said, you know, I really, I can't tell you anything about her, he said, because I don't speak German. But look at this art, honestly. So I figured I'd bring it in, I'd show it to you guys, and let's just talk about it. And we were unmoored. There was no scholarship there to anchor us. There was nothing except what we saw, our own two eyes. I had no idea art history could work like that. Oh, it was so exciting. And I'll tell you, that class, that teacher, that image really made me an art historian. And what surprised me was that All of the superlatives that you used about seeing her and seeing something new, it was all so evident to me. So I couldn't figure out why she was not in the books. It wasn't as if she were dismissed. She just wasn't there. God, that's shocking. I can't believe she hadn't been written into art history at that moment. I just feel bad for those art historians who missed out on seeing her electric-like works. But I love that light bulb moment. Do you remember which particular painting it was? Absolutely. It was the self-portrait with amber necklace, half nude. I just remember looking at it. And the reason it threw me is that the class was dealing with German expressionism. They were misogynists. uh, They were very, very tortured souls. It came through in their art. I love their art. But in the middle of that kind of definition, up comes this slide by Motors on Becker. And I thought, what is this? How does this fit in? And also 1906. 
I just, I didn't understand. And it was that question, actually, not simply the painting, but what is this and why doesn't it fit into the definitions that I've been memorizing here? So over the years, and it took me a while before I went back to graduate school, but when I did, I was so surprised when I discovered that nothing substantial had been published in English. But I didn't understand. It just didn't seem possible to me. I looked at this thing first in 1970. He had photographed it during the war, so that was in the 40s. And when I was ready to write my dissertation in the late 80s, there still was no appreciable body of scholarship on her. If we were looking at her within the parameters of German expressionism, of all of the tension of the war, of the war wounds of Kirchner, and of the hostility that they had towards culture, towards women also, I have to say, where did it fit and why was it categorized here? It didn't fit. I mean, you've spent an incredible amount of time researching her. I mean, in particular, I must say that it's down to you that her fantastic three quarters self-portrait with two flowers is actually in MoMA's collection. I mean, what led to this whole journey? The first step was going to New York and getting a master's degree in art history at Hunter College. I thought I would go back and see what was done on Moda Becker. Nothing. By this time, I knew that her letters and journals had been published in German. And I thought, well, if her own words were translated into English, A, this would be a real contribution to the field, and this could start the ball rolling on scholarship. And my dissertation advisor thought I really had something there and encouraged me. And so I did that. The Paula Motorzone Becker Museum called to say that there was a resurgence of interest in her. And they asked me what I thought about the possibility of a show in the States. And so knocked on MoMA's door. I knocked a bit too early and they were interested in her, but not able to commit. And I kept in touch. And over time, came the Me Too movement, and it pushed everybody everywhere over the globe to rethink what the situation for women with ambition really was like, because Me Too is about women in the workplace who wanted more, and certain characters, certain men who figured out how to take advantage of that. Anyway, MoMA then called me and said, what do you think would be good for us in what is available for Motorzone Becker? And I said, well, let me look. And I suggested some things to them. Weren't right, weren't right. But then that show in Paris was on, and I thought, perfect, perfect for the Museum of Modern Art because that painting in that museum would introduce her to an American public that did not know her. And that painting had a terrific backstory. There's nothing like biography to get some interest stoked. So here it was, and it was this self-portrait that is her last self-portrait. It's done when she is pregnant. She's probably doing it in her last trimester. And after she gives birth, a couple of weeks later, she does die. And I thought to myself, this has too much backstory to not be the perfect painting. So I suggested it, and that is how it all started to take place. And it took a while, because in Europe, 
Motorzone Becker is very, very well known. And there is not a lot available by her because she is in the major museums in Germany, Copenhagen, others. But MoMA did it, and there it was. And when they got the go-ahead, Anne Temkin called me and said, Diane, it's on its way over, and it's going to be in our conservation lab. And I said, oh, Anne, I want to see it. And so <gasps> there it was. It was terrific. Wow. Long journey. Yeah. interrupted by a lot. But in the meantime, my focus did remain on the fortunes of women artists, basically in Europe at the turn of the century, that moment when women really start to have a face, a presence in modern art. And that is what made me realize that what is modern about modern art is the participation of women artists, known and accepted in its day. It's not simply stylistic revolutions, but a revolution of who the participants are because they define the art differently. So, I mean, Paula Modest Becker was born in 1876 in Dresden as the third of seven children. I mean, can you tell me about her childhood? I mean, was art something she was always interested or encouraged to do? It was something she always did, apparently. She scribbled from the get-go. There are no other practicing artists in her immediate family. Her mother was nobility, but her father was not. He came from an educated family. There was a big discussion at the turn of the century on the fortunes of single women. This is probably going to be familiar to those of your audience who know something about Katie Kovitz. Yeah. Her father also wanted to make sure that his daughters, Katie and her sister, had some kind of fallback. He especially believed that Kovitz would need because uh, he didn't believe she was pretty enough to marry. Oh, but <laughs> thank you. But also something that Paula Modersohn Becker's father felt too. He wanted them to be able to support themselves because there was the example in his own family of his sister who never married, and that relegated her to a very restricted life. So you put those two things together a very cultured mother and a father who was interested in his daughter having a fallback. But his idea of a fallback was being a governess. Her idea of a fallback was always art. She agreed to go to school to train as governess if she could go to art school afterwards. And he said, okay. And that's exactly what happened. She, To read her letters, she was so bored in the program. <laughs> on uh, being a governess. But uh, what she had in mind was being able to go to art school. So she went. She went to Berlin. She went to the Women's Art School in Berlin, as indeed did any woman who wanted an art education. There were no art schools for women. Art education for women was always something that was done within the home. But if you were a Paula Motorzone Becker or even a Katie Colvitz, where father, uncles were not artists, you needed to have an academic training. So there were these schools, one in Berlin, one in Munich, one or two others. They were all annexes of the Royal Academy schools. Before that, you may know that she went to England. Yeah. She was supposed to go to England for about a year or so, I think. And she only lasted a couple of months because she and her aunt, who she was housed with, they did not get along. Oh, no. 
<laughs> really. And her aunt's husband wanted to figure out some way to tamp down the tension in the house. He saw her interest in art and he said, we'll put her in art school. We'll, we'll put her in a really good art school where she's got to go to school all day. We'll keep her out of the house. <laughs> and uh, that's what they did. She was about 16 years old, I think. Her very first introduction to formal art school was there, but the tension with her aunt continued. Eventually, after several months, she went back home. And that was when her father suggested her going to the teaching seminary. And But at that point, she also had her first inclinations of what she would really like to do with art. So that was the trade-off to go to the women's art school. And so, I mean, this is the sort of 1890s. I mean, it's still very kind of academic. We haven't really, you know, I mean, she's the first modern German artist completely. I mean, she goes on to become one. But at this point, it's the 1890s. I mean, what's happening? What's she making at this time? When she was in the women's art school, we have our first notation on one of her drawing pads about her ambition, and it was Paris. She apparently in that milieu had heard enough about Paris where you could just go and pay your couple of francs and sit down and draw from a nude model. She was very aware of the fact that even in this woman's art school, she was not allowed to do any drawing from the nude or painting, actually, from the nude. So in between semesters, she went back home to Bremen. And while she was back home, it was her mother who became aware of an art colony very near Bremen called Vorpsveda. And she arranged for her daughter to go to this art colony. And this was terrific because it wasn't back and forth as a day student. It meant she went to Vorpsveda. She lived there for the summer in the milieu of artists. Now her mother arranged for her to be able to rent a room, rent a studio, and live in an art colony. And that really sealed her face. So she made a friend there. At that point, Clara Vesthoff, who eventually would marry the poet Rainer Maria Rilke, apparently they made plans for going to Paris because in January 1st, 1900, dawn of a new century, with her parents' permission, of course, she went to Paris for what was supposed to be about a year, I think, half a year, definitely. So she went to Paris, and there she met up with Clara Vestoff, who was studying with Rodin. Wow. And so she was now in this situation of artists who were really serious about modernity. Yeah. This art colony, while... It was very convenient and a great nesting ground for her. The fact was that it was a kind of late 19th century bucolic art colony. They were devoted to landscape painting, etc. And this was not what interested Paula. She said so even at the time. She was much more interested in the figure. And that was something that motivated her to go to Paris. Hence, off to Paris. She meets up with her friend Clara Vesthoff. She moves into the same art studio that Clara lives in. It was wonderful for her, just wonderful. She was now not a student. She was 
taken as an artist, went to all the museums, went to the art galleries, went to visit artist studios, and then that's how her story begins and unfolds. I love in the book, the MoMA book, you say such a good quote, she waved goodbye to her family and sped up into the future. This whole trip was a complete revelation. It must have been incredible for her, you know, lusting after this place that I'm sure people would have heard about because this is centuries before any kind of colour reproduction or anything. It must have been so exhilarating to see the French modernists in the flesh for her. But also something I've only begun to appreciate right now some of this idea about the French, about modernity, yeah, this was inculcated in the women's school in Berlin with the women artists who were teaching these women students. Because when she went back to the art colony, they were not interested in Paris. They were not interested in modernity. If you see some of their paintings, they're very beautiful, but they're yeah. very late 19th century. And quite Barbizon school-like. Oh, absolutely. So when she meets Clara Vesthoff in this art colony, and Clara wants to go and do sculpture with Rodin, yeah. she's met an equal. It's her first time she's met a contemporary with her set of ambitions, a local girl. She was so excited. Oh, those are incredible letters to read. You can feel the exhilaration in her words. And so while she was here, she met a painter called Otto Modersen, who I think, am I right in thinking he was a decade older than her, but he was actually married with a wife when she had met him. Romance intervenes. Yes. When she's at this art colony, she meets one Otto Motorzone. And of all of these landscape painters, she looked at him and she said, this man is the best painter here. And she kept him in view. Trouble was, he was just married. And he'd been married about two years. And his wife then gave birth to a daughter. And his wife, here's an omen for you who was 31 when she gave birth to her first child, was also made ill. She didn't die as quickly after childbirth as did Paula at age 31. Wow. But she did not survive. Oh my goodness, that's awful. And to think that they both died when they were 31. But Paula and Otto were both in Paris before she died? She was writing letters back to the artists in Vorpsveda, among them, Otto Motorzone, saying over and over, you, you guys, you've got to come. You've got to see this. And indeed, they did come. And while they were there, Otto receives a telegram from Vorpsveda saying his ailing wife had died. So he cut short his trip to Paris and went back. She fell in love with him. She chased him back to Vorpsveda. And so Paula was left back in Vorpsveda lonely again. And so after a while, with her friends gone, 1903 to be exact, she wanted to go back to Paris. But what she really missed, she said over and over again, was the opportunity to draw and paint from the nude. And she couldn't do it any longer in Vorpsveda. She talked Otto into letting her go to Paris at first was six weeks, eight weeks in these intervals of every year so that she could brush up on what it was she really wanted to do, go back to looking at things in museums. And over time, the interval between these trips to Paris got shorter and shorter. She couldn't really stand the boredom 
that she was feeling professionally, emotionally. Sometimes I think she even begged Otto to come to Paris with her, come for these six weeks, come for the eight weeks. And then finally, he admits that he is frightened of French modernism. He doesn't want its influence on his painting. He is a good 11 years older than her. So what was going on in Paris was a threat. So Paula just felt more and more isolated until finally, as she said to her mother, I couldn't take it anymore. And I'm not paraphrasing. I couldn't stand it anymore. And she left. And it's an incredible story. Apparently, she left without telling anyone except Clara and Rainer Maria Rilke. But they were the ones she confided in. They were the ones who prompted her, who said, you've got to get out of there, Paula. You've got to come to Paris. You, with your ambition and your talent and your vision, eventually she listened to them, but she snuck out. She waited until nobody would have suspected anything. She waited until two days after her husband's birthday and snuck out without his knowing. I love that in your fantastic book, you say the letters are just so visceral. I mean, you can almost sort of feel her tremble in a way that her words, I mean, she says, I have left Otto Modison and stand poised between my old and my new life. What will it be like? And what will I be like in my new life? Now it is all about to happen. I mean, it's like in 1900, when you say, you know, the stroke of the century, she goes to this place. It's this journey for the next time. But I mean, you talk about how her plan was to be something. I mean, what did she want out of this final trip? I mean, she was leaving Otto behind. What was the plan with Paris? I do want to tell you this, too. When you talk about how visceral those letters are, when yeah. I read them the first time and had to translate them, oh my when, <laughs> when I got to this part, leaving Otto, the letters that would go back and forth between yeah. them, I cried because I oh felt I was intruding. These letters are so personal. They are yeah. so full of the pain of a marriage gone wrong and an ambition that she cannot explain to a husband, a family. And this is where modernity happens. This is yeah. where a woman starts following her own ambition. And when push comes to shove between being the good mother and being the good wife and being the good artist, she opted for the artist, and nobody could understand her. What was she going to do? Well, I don't know that she even knew. I think she was running towards, but how she was going to maintain herself, even she wasn't sure. She took the easy way out. Her husband kept writing her and saying, come home. He enlisted friends and family in a letter writing campaign saying, go home. And so she took a little bit of an advantage of that and said, well, will you send me some money? If you say that you're still interested in my well-being, then send money. She writes to her sister and says, you know, I'll say, I hear you're in touch with Otto. Tell him to send money. Oh, my goodness. And it's not dressed in niceties. But I mean, the work that she's making at this time is so groundbreaking. I mean, this goes on to be one of her sort of most prolific eras of her life. And I mean, I'd love to start by talking about the reclining mother and child, because I think the fact that this was made in 1906, I mean, for the audience, please look it up. It's this fantastic kind of cramped, almost sort of tortured, bulbous mother sort of clutching 
trying to hold onto her belly. Her body is swollen. I mean, it's almost like a sort of Alice Neal about 60 years before. I mean, it's such a contemporary image of a mother and child. You've got it right. And she leaves for Paris at the end of February. So it is April that she's getting herself all set up. Mother and child, we have drawings for it that are dated in early May. It is one of the first paintings that she does when she gets to Paris. The dam is broken. Everything Mm. that she has had welling up in her, she is able to hire a model. And I'm going to guess that when she got this particular model, who you will notice has a lot of similarity to these bulbous peasants that she was painting, the old women in Vorpsvedas, something that she knew, but also... These were not the most popular models. This is a woman who's just had a child. She's still holding the the belly of pregnancy, and she's got to bring her child with her into Paula's studio because she's breastfeeding her baby. I have a feeling that it was a lot of circumstance that happened with that painting, but I sincerely believe that she did not think she would be doing a mother lying horizontally like an animal on the floor, a mother of the earth, because you only see the painting, but this painting is preceded by numerous drawings of the mother and child in an upright position, of the mother playing with the child. She's thinking about doing this mother and child in some very traditional ways. And from there in, there's the idea. And she works with it. So I think she was somebody always looking. This painting is about four feet, five feet horizontal. Honestly, uh, she means it to be a life-size female. So she does these oil studies on cardboard. Now, she's in Paris. She's broke. She spends money on canvas to do the painting that we see. She paints so many of these incredible paintings on cardboard, on masonite, on cheaper materials. But she spent money on this, and it was her first masterpiece. She knew who she was, what she was capable of, within one month of going to Paris. And then everything else starts. I mean, I mean, you know, in May, I mean, she's so groundbreaking. I mean, her and Susan Valadon are kind of both credited as being some of the first ever women to paint self-nude portraits. I mean, I have to ask you about self-portrait age 30, sixth wedding day, May 25th, 1906, because this is such a tender portrait. It's a sort of three-quarter nude. She's wearing a sort of simple sheet over her bottom half of her body. She's wearing a sort of long beaded necklace and she's clutching her stomach as if she was pregnant, but she's not pregnant. I mean, why would she create something like this? I mean, was this sort of pregnant for this sort of birth of a new life? Or I mean, what did this pregnancy represent? That makes everyone think that she is pregnant. I accede to the fact that That's the thought that comes to mind. And I'm much more inclined as an art historian to look at two other accidents, events that precede this portrait. And I think it has a really different origin. And I think its origin actually is in the Venus de Milo in uh, the Louvre. And I think that because it is also a period when she and Rilke are spending a lot of time together. And there he was talking about this Greek male nude and writing about it for his own definition of poetry. There she is in 
the Louvre. There is the Venus de Milo in the same position with this wrap under the belly as Mother's own Becker. And I argue that what she was doing there was thinking about herself as a woman artist, a modern woman artist. I have a feeling she saw herself as a goddess. And I think this one is just so much of her energy and a statement about the woman as an artist. You look and you think, is she pregnant? Is that what a pregnant belly looks like? Isn't that a little too low? She has left her husband. She's writing these glorious journal entries and letters saying, I'm free, free at last. She's celebrating herself. It's so interesting. She's writing home and she's talking about this freedom. I'm so fascinated by this Paris that she's living in. This is the most sort of avant-garde Paris there has been ever. One can't help always when I look at something like self-portrait with amber necklace, but just think about someone like Gwen John, who is working in the same city as her, somewhere else in Paris. And they're both sort of claiming these rooms of their own in a way. They have their own studio. It, like you said, it's modernity. Can you tell us about who she was mixing with Paris and what she influencing anyone at this point as well? At this point in 1906, from what I can discern from the letters and from the journals, she is really in her studio working all the time. She socializes at night with her younger sister, who's in Paris, Perma. When she writes home, says, all Paula is doing is painting. She wakes up in the middle of the night and because she can't sleep anymore and she continues to paint. If she's continuing to paint, it's by candlelight and moonlight, which is exactly, to tell you the truth, how Picasso was painting at that time too. Might she have influenced him at all? Is that ever a tempting question? Ooh-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> I've wondered, I've crossed uh, their chronologies of when he is in Paris, when she is in Paris, where are they living? She does tell us about the time she does go up to Montparnasse. We know from the extensive Picasso literature that uh, these days, when he was really very poor, he and friends would run a tab at certain cafes. He is a good friend of one Henri Rousseau. Rousseau lives about a half a block away from Motors on Becker. Rousseau keeps an open gallery, an open studio, and invites artists to come up all the time. Rousseau also happens to be a good friend of Bernard Hoytker, who is the German sculptor who befriends Motors on Becker. Did he take Motors on Becker with him and say, come meet my friend Henri. He lives just down the block. He's having an open studio. So what I tried to do was see all of the possibilities. So I looked at artwork and there were a couple of paintings that he is doing at that time and she is doing at that time that have, thanks to the Picasso literature, his paintings have really firm dates. And we have some good solid periods when certain of her paintings are done. And there are some really interesting crossovers where she is doing things that we will see in his work later. And that happens twice. This self-portrait with amber necklace. And Picasso does the same painting. He does a self-portrait half-nude. Wow. And he does that when he returns from Spain. So he does it after her. Has he gone up to her studio? The other one, portrait of Lee Hoytger, 
that has a very peculiar shape of the head. And I asked myself, what was Picasso doing at exactly this time? We know her to paint that painting in August. It is the period when Picasso is working on his Gertrude Stein. Yeah. And it's legendary. He gets the whole painting down except for the head. Except for the oh head. My gosh. He takes the head <laughs> off and then he says, I've got to take a break. He goes to Spain. So he leaves the painting without the head done. Oh my and gosh. when he comes back and he gets it immediately and he paints in the head that we all know right now. The Metropolitan Museum of Art, which owns that Gertrude Stein, published an article that illustrated x-rays of where that head was positioned all those many, many times before he settled on that final head turn. And I don't know what is in your imagination. If you take a look at that Picasso, if you take a look at that body of Gertrude Stein, what positions are you imagining? Look at that body. How? Are you imagining a full frontal, full profile? Take a look at those x-rays. He starts that head in full profile. Take a look at that head. And take a look at the head in the Lee Hoiker portrait. And all of a sudden, the position of the head, the nose, everything about that head starts to cross over to asking myself whether or not Picasso saw that when he got back from Spain. Did he go visit his great friend Rousseau? Did it give him an idea? Not did he copy it, but did it give him an idea? I mean, I've got the two in front of me right now. And I think that, I don't know, it might be possible. It might be possible. But I mean, in October of 1906, everything changes. What's going on with Otto and Paula at the moment? Is he missing her? Is he telling her to come back? What happens? Eventually, he does spring himself on her in late June, early July for about a week. It all goes very badly and he goes home. He keeps asking her to let him come back in the fall. She decides to stand firm. She writes Otto. She says, don't come. And she tells that to Hoytger. And Hoytger spends an entire night, apparently, talking her down and talking her into accepting Otto coming for a long period in Paris. And she says to Otto... Hoytker talked to me all evening, and I wrote the letter to you to tell you to stay home. It wasn't really what I meant. So she writes him in early September, but he does not arrive until November. And uh, they get back together, and he says, you know, I'll promise you anything, anything, anything you want. You want a bigger studio in Vorpsfeder? You want to go to Paris several times a year? You want a baby? Okay, we'll have a baby. Oh, wow. So he's really fighting for this marriage, but she is just wanting to go out alone. Absolutely. But in the end, he comes and she gets pregnant. And she comes to realize that uh, A, life is a lot easier with somebody paying the rent and having those worries off of her. She writes letters to her husband with one emotional tone that is very different from the letters she writes to Rilke and Clara. She hesitates to write them. She says, you know, you're going to be disappointed in me. I, I, wasn't able to, I, I wasn't able to hack it. And she then is saying things 
back to not only Rilke, but even to her mother saying, you know, as soon as I'm not needed here, I want to go back to Paris. And she talks about the Cezanne exhibition. You think, Paula, as soon as you're not needed here, you're about to give birth. And the (laughs) Cezanne exhibition, it's going to be over in about three weeks. What do you think? You're going to give birth and pack up and go? (laughs) She's happy to have the baby. So it reads in every account of it written by her family. Clara came back from Berlin in time to visit with Paula with the baby. And she said she hadn't seen her look that happy in such a long, long time. It was motherhood. On top of which, one of the comments that she made was, I can paint her in the nude. (laughs) And as far as the baby is concerned, she is happy, but she is thinking her mother's going to take care of it. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. She's 31. She is on the sort of cusp of her life. She hardly even sold any works during her lifetime. What happens to her work after she dies? I mean, she only is working for 15 years, yet she leaves behind 700 paintings and a thousand drawings and prints. Exactly right. And she was not planning on dying, so there is no will, but it doesn't matter. Everything of a wife belongs to her husband. And her friends in Vorpsveda, they believe in her and they do a lot to promote her. And eventually, it means the Paula Becker Museum. Which is the first female artist museum ever dedicated to a female artist in the world. Not in the world, but in Europe. Okay. The first one in the world was in, of all places, Texas. So she was promoted by these various figures who were her friends. But what intervenes between her death and her rising reputation is World War One. With World War One comes a big shutdown in the art world, of course. It's not until the war is over that the art gallery scene burgeons again in Berlin. And it is Neumann who gives her her first exhibition, one-person exhibition. He opens his gallery with an exhibition of Dada, the very next show he does is Motorzone Becker. Wow. He looks at her very differently than the way the art world before World War I had looked at her. The audience for art before World War I, that was a different audience. The audience after all of the devastation of World War I, they were not about to engage art in the same way even movies changed. George Groves, Otto Dix, tough, tough artists. And that same audience was interested in Motorzone Becker. They saw what she was doing and the way she was looking at women and the way she was looking at peasants so differently from the pre-war painters. A big fan of Motorzone Becker after World War II was Max Beckman. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's a change in many layers of the art world uh, itself. And you would not get anyone after the First World War making the same kind of art that artists were before, which leads me to conclude 
that she was an artist ahead of her time. Absolutely. Her time came later. And there you go. Well, Diane, thank you so much for this. Just incredible insight into her life and work. I mean, it's just fascinating. And to think that, you know, she died on the dawn of German expressionism and sort of what was to come and how ahead of her time she was. I just think it's remarkable. And I love the fact that, you know, she almost is the kind of essence of the modern woman in every single way she completely could have evokes modernity in every sense but as is the great women artist podcast i'd love to ask we always ask our guests if there's anything that you could have said or you could have asked paula modison becker what would it have been given that i've heard your podcasts i've known this question <laughs> good <laughs> so i have actually thought about it what i would like to know isn't answered by a a question i would have liked to have been there the moment when it occurred to her to paint herself new, not the one done at age 30, but the one that I saw on the screen in 1969. Where? When? What was the spark? We know she used photography to pose herself. When did the idea come where she, as the artist, became the model? Where she, as the woman artist, became the subject of her art? Amazing. Well, Diane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 58th episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Diane Radicke on the staggeringly pioneering Paula Modison Becker. I am just in awe at Modison Becker's life and work and urge you all to look it up. As always, I have linked through to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the absolutely brilliant Laura Hendry. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Woman Artist podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 